The Meters Game Podcast presents a special interview. All right, well, thanks for joining us, Glenn, on the Meters Game Podcast. Pleasure. Here with uh, Samson and myself. Uh, Here where? Where we are, are we? the uh, beautiful KPMG precincts in Docklands. It's a precinct, isn't it? Well, yeah, it's currently... <laughs> I get nervous already. Corporate talks. <laughs> is he like this all the time, Samson? Oh, is this who he is? If you, if you is hear he the podcast, it's a little bit different. Is he going to talk silos <laughs> and their ability to interact? <laughs> I'm nervous already. A lot of people at work think I'm quite a serious cat, but outside of work... Yeah, look, Jeremy's probably got into the most trouble out of all of us just from being himself. Really? (laughs) But he looks very KPMG-like, to be honest. He would be a poster (laughs) boy. I mean, we understand a podcast is not a visual medium, but staring across the table here with all this incredible sound equipment that we're (laughs) privy to, you've got the blue shirt, the grey slacks, the black belt, the, I'm going to call them, they're almost that tortoise shell type glass uh, frame that you've got. And and you've got the the hair that's got very little product in it. Unlike Samson. You've got very little product in the hair, which says to me, Hey, I've been up working late. I'm trying to put in the extra hours and I've turned up back here at seven. Hey, give me a pay rise. I've nailed it, haven't I, really? That's about right. It's just about right. Now, we're in a, well, would you call this a capsule? It's like a little meeting room. Yeah. It's absolutely stunning. I feel like we're really going to be able to have an elaborate conversation. So far away, hit me with some questions on this podcast of yours, The Meters Gained. Let's gain some meters. <laughs> yeah, well, we spoke to an ex-teamer of yours, Chris Massey, who didn't mind to gain a few meters back in his day. Uh, he had some pretty interesting stories. Do you keep in touch with any of your ex-teammates these days? Like, what is the sort of your social dynamics with, you know, the ex-players? So, essentially, you're straight into the silo conversation. So, <laughs> Chris Massey is actually somebody who I do keep in contact with. Uh, Anthony Franchina is somebody that I often see. But beyond these sorts of people, and there are many more to list that I won't now because that's boring uh, for your <laughs> listeners, but unfortunately, you step away from that AFL space. Yeah. Life rolls on in different directions for everyone. Yeah. Be it onshore, offshore, be it professional, be it uh, on a personal level, people are doing their own thing. And in fact, I, I was reading some articles recently about professional NBA, NFL players and the supposed indignity of going back to the real world and having a real world job, etc., etc. I couldn't think of anything more important. Mm. I couldn't think of anything more important than being able to leave your professional career, whether you made $1 or $100 million, and finding your way back into society, back into the community, back into your own neck of the woods, in inverted commas, where you feel you're adding some value back. Mm. Because sitting on the couch, sipping champagne, watching your previous games... Uh, of sporting of, of sporting triumph and or failure is, as you say, Jeremy, completely empty. It's a hollow way forward. Yeah. So as you can imagine, in an AFL space, 40, 50, 60 men, let alone the women and other peripheral people around a football club, all ultimately have to go their own way and do their own thing. And 
We've got the 25th anniversary of the 1995 grand final victory, mm. uh, the last grand final that Carlton will win for the next 200 years. <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. I don't We're, winning, we're winning one next year. Bank it. Bank it. You can tell the KPMG folks to put that in a little database and spreadsheet. We'll win <laughs> the grand final next year to celebrate the 25th anniversary. But in all seriousness, 25th anniversary... Uh, you're going to have people there who haven't seen each other for quite some time. Yeah. You're have some people there who probably have some mixed feelings about the, the Carlton Football Club slash football for all sorts of reasons, where they're psychological, emotional, physical. You've got to remember there's a lot of guys uh, and girls across the sporting landscape who have been hurt by their sport, mm. whether it's inadvertently or otherwise. Mm. And if you can't walk into a room under your own head of steam because you've got a, a bung knee or a bung ankle, you can look at that from any number of perspectives and you can place blame wherever you like. So there's a lot of baggage that comes with playing professional sport and also the relationships within it. So the thought process from some people is that athletes are going, to, and particularly team-based athletes, are going to be around each other forever in a day. It's just not the case. Yeah, and I think that was the, basically the very similar sort of uh, aspect that Chris was talking about, how, you know, I guess from footy fans from the outside, it's thinking like, ex-footy players, all they think about is footy post-footy. You know, it's just like, it's just this, I guess, inherent sort of connection that we have for people that we see on the screen, that we see on the park. But in reality, it's so different. It is, it's a, just another life. But it's unhealthy. Yeah. It's unhealthy too. And, and I think a lot of people have struggled to understand that with my personality over the, the course of time. To be institutionalised in any space... KPMG, AFL football, uh, it could be a school or a university, it means that you've got a very, very narrow view on the world and your knowledge base is limited. Your ability to gain knowledge is limited by being completely submersed in a particular space for you know, five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. It, to me, is an unhealthy way to build uh, an accomplished, thoughtful, creative person. So mm -hmm. my philosophy has always been to break your life down into a, um, a series of, uh, if you like, quadrants that you can basically step in and out of so that you're fresh and contributing to each of them. You know, if I was in charge at KPMG, which clearly I'm not, <laughs> given the way I'm dressed and I walk through the uh, foyer and then up into this particular space and people are ready to throw me out as somebody who's homeless or, or otherwise because uh, no one's ever worn jeans to KPMG. Uh, I just think it's very, very unhealthy that you're trying to work around the clock in, in this space. That's just not the way to be productive and, and to put forward best product. And I think the same can be said for AFL football. You need to be able to step in and step out so you're feeling fresh, you're feeling energised, and you're appreciating the great privilege that it is mm. to play professional sport. Cool. And I, just stepping back, I mean, you talked about the 95 Premiership and the reunion. Do you want to sort of take us back to your move from, you know, arch rivals, Eston to Carlton and maybe sort of your relationship with Kevin Sheedy um, and sort of how you then found yourself into Carlton's 95 Premiership team? How yeah, And just, yeah, going back to the environment you were in, talking about the challenges. Well, I had no say in that move. I went to Eston when I was 16. Yep. Played in the under-19s and reserves from that age. 
I was part of the fabric. I'm probably the most local AFL footballer in the history of the game, to be quite honest. I don't think there'd be anyone probably more local than me. I grew up in the same street as Windy Hill. So that gives you a, a proximity in terms of geography as to where I grew up in the Essendon Football Club. Uh, I thought I was doing rather well as I was progressing through uh, that time in my life, my football career. I was runner-up in the Morrish Medal, and on the back end of that uh, particular achievement, I was delisted for the first time by Essendon. I was told by Kevin Sheedy I wasn't good enough. So I've just been named the second best under-19 player in yeah. the country, and I'm, I'm not good enough. That's somebody's prerogative. Uh, and to this day, as I'll explain in a minute, every coach slash administrator slash boss again in inverted commas, is welcome to their opinion. Mm. But what happened around that was the part that I struggled with, and that was that he offered me support and uh, a way forward, mm -hmm. but he never provided that. And that I found was really, really disappointing for me. But in some respects, uh, an important lesson and skill set that I was uh, given uh, inadvertently, which I've been able to share particularly with young people in my life. If I promise a young person and or even yourselves today are a great example when the request came through to be a part of this podcast, I had a choice, ignore, delete, or respond, contribute. And I always choose to respond and contribute. And there may be one person listening to this podcast, there may be a million. Mm -hmm. That's not the point. The point is that two people in this room, in terms of the two hosts about me, plus your other offsiders wanting to do something positive, wanting to contribute back not only to the, the landscape of media but to, to the community. I see no negative in this whatsoever. So how can I contribute? How can I help? And the worst thing I could possibly do is say, yes, I will be somewhere or I will do something and then not do it. So Kevin Sheedy let me down badly there. He redrafted me, which was bizarre in its own right. <laughs> yeah. So he redrafts me in the very next draft, delists me, then redrafts me, which is, again, like dropping your girlfriend on a Friday and picking her back up on a Monday. Very strange practice, not necessarily the right way to build relationship and trust and so forth. <laughs> yep. I then went the next three years of my life playing with the Essendon Football Club in a senior capacity, albeit spasmodically only played 21 games in three years, which, again, was a reflection of the time. If my career was more modern, I probably would have got 60 games yeah. in three years and given a real chance to show that I could play. But certainly back in those days, playing two weeks, being dropped for four, playing one game, dropped for six, playing through, very hard to get any continuity mm. and find your feet within the game. So I progressed my football to the stage where at the start of the 1995 season, I honestly think I was in the top three in virtually every category for the Essendon Football Club in terms of my health, fitness, well-being, mindset, ability. You know, I had to me, I had a really great mm. 1995 ahead of me. Uh, and then I was called into a room just ahead of the, um, the conclusion of pre-season, if you will, and told that I was delisted for the second time. Which At the again, end of pre-season? Uh, basically towards the end of pre-season because back in those days, you do some historical research, you'll appreciate that there was a pre-season draft mm. and that's where Carlton nabbed me in the pre-season draft uh, just ahead of, as I said, the season proper. But once again, unfortunately, Kevin Sheedy promised me a lot of help and support which he never delivered, mm. which I found very, very disappointing, particularly for a young person. Yeah. Again, make it clear to your listeners and to, to you, his prerogative to say that I wasn't good enough, that's absolutely fine. Mm. I can say 
all sorts of things to, to anyone at any stage. But you've got to be able to not only back it up, because I, did, I didn't think he was able to particularly back it up, but if you are going to offer support and help, provide it. Yeah. Provide it, absolutely. So I turn up to Carlton pre-season 1995 without much of that uh, space remaining, without even a pair of boots. I didn't even have a pair of boots. The SM Football Club wouldn't let me take my boots. So I turned up <laughs> to the Carlton Football Club without boots, without anything, uh, and basically say to the, the coach, David Parkin, I'm here, uh, to which you know I, I got a response that was incredibly welcoming, uh, insightful, somebody who, in, in the form of David Parkin, who wanted to understand about my family background, who I was as a person, uh, my beliefs, my philosophies. That once again, didn't mean he believed and, and mm. agreed with everything I had to say, but he showed an interest in me, and I just knew from that point forward that I would have success at the Carlton Football Club. And I'm not talking or referring in any way, shape, or form to playing in premierships. I'm mm. talking about being able to explore who I was. And I was able to do that. And fortunately, uh, at the back end of that particular season, the opportunities really opened up once the club understood what I could provide yeah. for me to become a regular team member and then play in the grand final. So was there, I guess, a particular moment in that 95 season where you feel that you really broke the barrier and you were able to say, you know, you know I'm here, pick me now, and that was the stage that where it happened? It's actually a very, very good question. Five points to you for asking it. Uh, that's five to Saxon. Zero to you, Jeremy. So to this point, your questions have been rather poor. I, um, I'll take it. I knew, again, around that midpoint of the season that there was no one else in that team space that could literally play every position on the ground. Yeah. And that was me. The utility. I could do anything. I could be that Swiss Army knife. And I felt like given the personality of the coach and the makeup of the team, that that was potentially an important piece of the puzzle. To have somebody who was capable of doing a, a big role or coming off the bench or troubleshooting somewhere, uh, I felt like that was a real uh, plus for the team. There was a game against the West Coast Eagles where I took a, a very critical mark in the dying seconds. And I think that really sort of stamped my arrival upon the team that, hey, you know, this guy's going to stand up for us. Uh, again, to think that you're going to outplay and outbest uh, a lot of the champions in the team was never my intention, but how can you compliment them? Mm. What can you do? And I certainly think, as I said, uh, amongst all the knives and forks, you, you've got to have, you know, the spork. Mm. And that was my role. That's, yeah, that's cool. It's, really, it's I guess, a super impressive identifying that yourself first and then presenting it to the team in a sense that makes it easy for them to make that decision. I've been through so much in my yeah. life up until that point. Mm. So many huge crossroads that the average person just does not come across, again, in, in all seriousness. In this office, I'm 46 years of age. There'd be no one in this office space who's had any of the experiences in life that I have had to the level that I've had. Like, I've had a graphic, graphic life. Mm. You know, at the age of 17, I cut my right arm in half and I was faced with the challenge of how do I rebuild my entire life now? And my life's just taken one hit after another. Not all of them bad. Mm. Some positive things, like in the AFL Grand Final, the 1995 Grand Final, which uh, we're talking about, it could have been a real negative for me. Mm. I could have started wandering around the streets of Melbourne like I was king shit. 
Yeah. But I'm not king shit. I'm me working hard at being me. I'm just a very, very uh, determined and focused human being. Uh, but that doesn't give me any privilege beyond anyone else. And I guess talking about privilege is an interesting point because, I mean, looking at modern day football, I sort of see with the draft and maybe it just seems that when I'm sort of watching you know, my team play Carlton, there's players that sort of, they're sort of just guaranteed a spot. A lot of the players sort of going through the motions. And when I watched you play, I can remember back in the day and, you know, you've really played with your heart in your sleeve and you really sort Thank of, you. there's a really strong appreciation to take the opportunity. And I'm not sure if plays these days it's all more about just you know being athletic and it's all about just training hard but there's not that sense of actual competitive spirit like it was back in the days what are your views on that five points to you for an interesting observation so it's now five points all just put in the spreadsheet <laughs> exactly let's get out the spreadsheet and document this the three of us can't answer that question mm. the only people who can answer that are the individuals themselves i can appreciate what you're saying and if we just take an aspect of the game as an example and compare it between you know glenn manton era and uh jacob weedering era if you like and I, I saw this just the other day on some footage that i happened to see of an old game which i played 2001 which 18 years ago the the, the clock has certainly marched forward rapidly if the ball was on the ground and you were standing near it, Jeremy, I was well within my rights to run flat chat yeah. at you, at the ball, and literally obliterate you in any way, shape, or form in order to attack that ball. As long as my eyes were focused on that ball, I could do whatever I want. So your ankles, your knees, your hips, whatever else, really? secondary. Yeah. And if I knocked you out in that situation, as you just mentioned, well, that was relatively irrelevant too. That was just poor old Jeremy wasn't up to that tough task against, against the junkyard dog who came flying in there. Yeah. In 2019, clearly that can't happen for a myriad of reasons in terms of your physical conditioning and, and your well-being, let alone mums and, and dads at yeah. home and their perception of, oh, goodness me, what happened to Jeremy there? That's untoward. So the world yeah. has shifted so much. So I would say we shouldn't get confused about Jacob Wiedering and or any other young player running at the ball and then almost being completely Pausing, yeah. confused yeah. as to how do I go about this? And I really think that the average AFL footballer does a pretty incredible job of trying to manage a game which is unlike any other on earth yeah. in a space unlike most on earth with a set of rules that are ever evolving. Mm. And I'm not the sort of person who criticises the AFL or the, certainly not the umpires. I think the umpires would be absolutely applauded. I think they're brilliant. Mm. Uh, let alone the players. It's such a challenge, a 360-degree combative sport in the modern era of ridiculous political correctness, oversaturation of media, uh, irrelevant opinions being thrown into that ether all the time by people who just have zero clue about sports, let alone life. Mm -hmm. I feel very sorry for the modern player because as you said, and I'm not having a, a go at your question at all or your comment at all, because I think it was a very insightful one, it's just hard to get that perception. Mm, yeah, for sure. So are they are they as committed as they've always been or should have always been? Yeah, I think they are. 
to, are they desperate to win and, and find happiness through winning and, and their own self-fulfillment? Absolutely. And I think that's why your team, the team that I also play for, the current football club, is in such a desperate space. Mm. Because whether you like it or not, you're turning up to work every single day and you're not succeeding. And I don't know any athlete, any genuine athlete, let alone any genuine human being who wants to turn up to work, whether it's the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, and deliver an inferior product. You want to be the best you can be. Yeah. That's very good. Oh, that's an excellent answer. <laughs> 10 points there. Yeah. 10 <laughs> points. I'm like it's 10. So, unique characters. Talk about some of your teammates. I guess in maybe a, a light-hearted sort of approach. Mm. Have you got any, I guess, funny stories where any of your, your teammates have come, propped up and they've said something hilarious or done something funny and mm. it's just totally set off the coaching panel and they're just like, what the hell is going on here? Oh, there's a myriad of stories and, yeah. and incidents that I could share with you. To be quite honest, I had a very strong and well-earned reputation as being someone who was incredibly disruptive and <laughs> and, and naughty and, uh, I guess, cunning behind the scenes. And, you know, Chris Massey, he wouldn't have mentioned this to you because he'd be too embarrassed, but I went to Channel 7 back in the day and I had them send him an official Channel 7 letter from Rex Hunt telling him that he'd been invited on Rex Hunt's fishing show <laughs> and to meet Rex Hunt down at St Kilda on a particular pier at 6am or whatever it was uh, with you know a packed lunch and his fishing rods and all this sort of stuff. Of course, Rex Hunt never turns up. Uh, so I, I have a, a huge history. I could probably write a book just on the stupid pranks that I've done and, and you know I guess frivolity that I've put forward over the years. I was, I was only thinking the other day, uh, about the last Carlton function that I, I sort of attended, which was a sort of an end-of-year breakup back in 2003. I came dressed as a gorilla uh, <laughs> because the whole McMartin debacle and, and what, a, what a shame and, and absolute disgrace, to be quite honest, that whole period of time was. But I came dressed as a gorilla, so I turned up to Puckle Street, Mooney Ponds, uh, dressed as a gorilla for that particular function, but I didn't take the costume off. So no one was 100% sure if it was me or not. I, most people had an inclination. I had my little gorilla outfit on. But the story, as I take a sip of water, the story that I like uh, to share uh, might, might be that, that funny on the surface because I'll tell it rather in a straight tone, but I really like reflecting upon this. Myself and Stephen Silvani would go head-to-head with a lot of, uh, I guess, uh, focused attempts to disrupt each other's lives, and I I certainly won that battle uh, convincingly, 50 points to me. Uh, But on one particular occasion, Silvani sent down real police, real detectives, to arrest me for... I can't even remember what the pretend charges were, but I knew right from the get-go that this wasn't legitimate. They were legitimate cops. So, again, think about that. Hmm. 2019, you're not going to get legitimate detectives to wander into the Carlton Football Club and be part of a prank. And so these particular particular detectives um, were, you know, good sports, all the rest of it, and they certainly fit the bill but as soon as I saw them as soon as because you, you've got to understand in that landscape there's always somebody who can't keep, quite keep the joke and they've got a bit of yeah. a smile on their face but I knew straight away and, and when they said 
what the charges were. I just knew that it was absolute rubbish. And so at no stage was I got or was I fearful. But Ron DeLulio had no idea about the whole thing playing out and he actually thought the detectives had come for him. <laughs> so he quickly, he quickly ducked into the sauna, which, as by its name, was rather hot space. <laughs> and hot and yeah. hid, he hid under the benches in the sauna waiting for the, the police to leave. Now... When you're in a dark space, hot space, in the sauna, hiding under a bench and whatnot, you probably lose track of time, let alone consciousness. So Ron didn't train that night. He never made it out onto the training field. Probably lost about five kilos. He lost. He did. He uh, he dropped three or four kgs of being in the sauna, but thankfully wasn't arrested on whatever he thought he yeah, should have been arrested for. Uh, to this day, it's non-disclosed uh, issues that Ron had, but um, you know, just little things like that. Pretty pretty yeah. damn funny. And and to be yeah. quite honest. They're the things that I probably miss the most from that space is just that it's going to sound strange, but I'll use the word ridiculous camaraderie. Yeah. There's camaraderie. And again, you alluded to it earlier about who you see and, and yeah. whatnot. Well, the, one of the beautiful things about those relationships is that most of them, probably 80, 90% of them, you can pick up where you left off. And yeah. that's a nice thing, whether it's just a jibe about somebody's dress sense their hairstyle, whatever it happens to be, it's coming from a place of friendly of, of banter, friendly banter yeah. and, and quite often love. You know, you, yeah. you, you love your teammates. They're, they're not all your type of people. Mm. You didn't want to socialise with all of them, but you love what they contributed. And again, uh, in the last 12 months, I've watched quite a few different highlights packages of Carlton football club yeah. playing. <sighs> Some outstanding players, hmm. just outstanding players, and, and probably even 10, 20 times better than I remember the Mats. Yeah. They were very, very good players. Making mistakes, not always doing the right thing, but in terms of tactically and, and skill-wise, but you could just see how like talented they were. Well, just how talented they were. Yeah. And I was thinking about Scott Camparelli last night. I'd go as far as to say that less than 10% of his games were bad. I'm not saying poor, I'm just saying bad. They weren't great games. It's a pretty damn good strike rate yeah. to be able to say that you went out there at 90, 95% of the time and really, really played well. That's that was a gun, yeah. That's outstanding. Unbelievable. You know, yeah. so you look back on it and you reflect upon these these guys and and staff and all the rest of it, and you realise that, that there are great friendships there and, and great stories and tales and, and um, moments to share, but life marches on, and again, 1995 to 2020, we'll call it, the world's changed an enormous amount. And do you think, like, you know, which this has come down to, like, a cultural issue, saying, you know, when you back in the day, you and Sauce had those gags, that sort of builds this culture where everyone actually, like, has fun playing with each other on the field and it breeds a successful culture. Do you think there's like certain teams that might be struggling at the moment where there's just that bland Absolutely. culture, this, they don't really love each other off the field? And that's sort of what I was concerned about with the Blues where I looked at these players and I'm like, do they even like each other? Whereas this year I'm finally getting a sense that they actually sort of find on social media they have a bit more of a few gags. Like I think uh, Mitch McGovern put onions in Nick Newman's uh, lock when it spilled <laughs> yeah. out on the floor. And I actually thought that this morning actually made me pretty happy because I'm like, these guys are – you know, actually connecting on a nine-footy basis. 
Well, again, we just have to remember that in, again, 1995, we hop in the time machine and head back to 1995. Mm. There was no social media back then. So people didn't know that Glenn Manton had an argument with this person or this person was angry at that person or this happened or it didn't happen. And all Mm. the stories that I could roll out now, which, again, both of you weren't privy to, let alone the listener, they weren't captured on social media. I I think social media is a, a real infection it's not a great positive. It is mismanaged. It's a, it's a mm. series of th- thought processes that I don't think are very worthy for sport, let alone life. That's my own personal philosophy. I struggle with it. It's not a game that I want to play. Mm. I'm stuck with it to some extent, but it's not a game that I want to play. So you've got the effects of social media, the, the effects of political correctness, the effects of the world that we live in. Again, 95, 2020, I keep referring to 2020. Very different spaces, economies, political structures, mm. communities. You know, South Sudanese, there were no South Sudanese players in 1995. How does mm. that affect culture positively and or negatively? You know, again, the soccer in 1995 wasn't a particularly strong adversary for AFL football. 2020, I keep referring to as, it is. Yep. So the, the entire landscape's shifted and, and, and reformed in a very different way. I think it's very tough for the modern player. Very, very tough. I think a lot of them make life a lot tougher mm. on themselves. Mm. I could list all sorts of examples from all sorts of clubs who aren't very smart at playing the game. You want to get up to some mischief, whatever that mischief happens to be, be discreet. Yeah. Keep it quiet. Do whatever you want to eat. You know, I love cars. I took one of my cars out for a drive last night. I was very keen to light the thing up. (laughs) I really wanted to just give it a good little crack. I didn't because there was no appropriate opportunity or space or time to do that. And it's not my right to infect and and diminish other people's ability to live their life through my own stupidity. (laughs) So if I choose to do that, I can take it out to a drag strip or whatever happens to be and, and give it a squirt there. So unfortunately, I think communications and relationships are the fundamental foundation stone, if you will, of all success. And I think the current football club has struggled and continues to struggle mm. to get their head around that. Yeah. But they're not the only ones. Mm. Could also be KPMG. Could also be <laughs> Scotch College. Could also be you know, the police force. Who knows where it could be? But all these different spaces, the aforementioned spaces, all rely or should function at their highest level on Great communication, again, across all mediums and the relationships that that builds. In my opinion, my philosophy, and I'm happy to argue until the cows come home. I've got quite a few cows. <laughs> if, you can, if you can show me how your space, be it a family, a business, a sporting team, and or otherwise, can function without the best of the best in terms of communication and relationships, I'll take my hat off to you. Um, yeah, absolutely guarantee I'm right. That it's but it's exactly what happened with with Richmond. So I'm a big Richmond supporter, and it's with the Trent Cutchin how it came out that he essentially broke himself down because he tried to be this figure that was just no perfect in every regard, and that prevented him from having the communication and relationships with the rest of the playing group. Yeah, and then as soon as that barrier was broken, and all the players came together. One premiership. What's Nathan Buckley changed? His communication and the way in which he builds relationships and yeah. more power to him. 
So I think the, the important point to make here, both in studio and, and for your listener, is we've all got weaknesses. Hmm. We all make mistakes. We all need to evolve. It's have you got the ability to seek out the knowledge and the mechanisms to make those changes? I would consider myself a very, very good communicator. But have I got room to grow and improve? Absolutely. Maybe I'm, in terms of the the greater scheme of things, maybe I'm still at 10%. Mm. But I'm interested in getting to 20 to 30 to 40 to 50, et cetera, et cetera. It's when you are stagnant. And you just want to stay in that particular space and say, that's the best I can do or everyone else needs to lift their game. That's when teams, again, organisations, families, that's when they fail. And I mean, I sort of noticed you've got a strong relationship with Jarman MP who sort of moved from Port Adelaide to Hawthorne. You sort of want to um, enlighten us as to how you've sort of helped him prosper over his career and sort of how it links to the challenges that you faced back in the day. My additional son. Yeah, I love Jarman. I, I love him with every ounce of my heart. I think he's one of the most outstanding human beings I've ever met. I think he should end up being one of the more influential people to ever play AFL football. I think he's got that much talent on the field, but off the field, I think he's got something even greater to give. Mm. You know, Neil Danaher's career will be remembered as being 60, 70 games. Mm. But that's really not his impact on football and, and on the community. So mm-hmm. I think Jarman will be the same. Whether Jarman Impey plays 150 games or 500 games, I think that will ultimately be irrelevant. I think yeah. it's what he's able to bring off the field. And that's where I'm so incredibly attracted to him and proud of him. And I love considering him being part of our family, which he is. Mm. And how did it sort of evolve through coaching him as a as a younger man as part of Vic Country in the yeah. um, uh, national carnivals and so forth, mm-hmm. and uh, and just developing a very sincere, real relationship. I'm lucky to have had experience with probably fifty of the current players in the AFL, young men who run around, and I, I love all of them. And you know, just off the top of my head, only because he recently played. Uh, a milestone, a milestone game. Uh, Josh Dunkley. Mm. I love Josh. I think, going, he's, yeah. I think he's a great player. I think he's a yeah. great kid, and I'd do anything for Josh. But he hasn't gone that next level with me, and vice versa. Yeah. So for whatever reason, as relationships organically unfold, mm. you develop stronger bonds with some people. Uh, Josh Dunkley is he welcome to anything in my life? Absolutely. Take whatever you want. Mm sleep on my couch, sleep in my bed, not with me in it, but uh, (laughs) sleep where you want in my house. But that's a a great friendship. Yeah. This is pure love, if you like, between Jarman and I. And uh, his father, unfortunately, passed away. His father's name was Glenn. I think, you know, there is a little bit of magic in that, Mm. that I happen Mm. to be there. Uh, but make no mistake, you know, you, you don't always come across people like a Jarman MP2. You know, kicking, marking, all the rest of it, uh, outstanding. I, I'm really not that interested in that. I, I'm fascinated by a person who's able to love like he can. Yeah. I mean, you sort of mentioned... Trying to wind me up then, to be quite honest, Jeremy, off... <laughs> Off uh, air there, just to the side, if you're listening to this podcast, he's, he's kind of rolling his eyes and looking disinterested like you want to move on to the next question, minus five points. 
How are you going for time? Just I'm absolutely fine for yeah. time. That's okay. another yeah. couple of questions. Maybe. Yeah. My parking. How's my parking going? Let's just have a look. We'll keep all this in the podcast. Yeah, that's right. Uh, the <laughs> thing that I love about this PayStay device is that I am able to update my parking from here in the KMPG offices uh, without actually being there. Now, it's going to ask me if I moved my vehicle. Of course, I did confirm. Okay, start parking. So the Victorian government's got my money for parking. Hopefully, they don't tow that car for being cheeky, which means I've got an additional 10 minutes here. I'm getting paid by the minute, aren't I? <laughs> oh, by the second? Yeah. By yeah. the second? Yeah. I will check. Oh, I think we bill in six minutes. In six minutes? There'd be some sort of KPMG mechanism in KPI, there. KPI, yeah. I'm sure. We're going along nicely. How long have we been going for here? 40 minutes. 40 yeah. minutes. Well, I think, well, I think, I was I think gonna... this is a seven-part podcast. Isn't <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, I like something that everyone, I mentioned a few people at work that would been bring you in the very side, and they want us to ask sort of a lighter question about the unique piercing you have. Yes. Would you be happy to discuss oh, I'm that? I'm happy to talk about that. Number one, you can thank your friends for having an interest in my penis. I really appreciate <laughs> that. <laughs> Over the years, a lot of people have found that a fascinating part of my body. Look, to your friends and to any of the uh, listeners of this podcast, it's really not a big deal. It's simply like putting mag wheels on a Commodore. It's still a Commodore. So you can dress it up however you like. It's still just a penis. It, it is pierced. It is still pierced. It does chip teeth. Uh, that's just the way the cookie crumbles. What else would you like to know, Jeremy? You've got a bright shade of red. <laughs> it's one of the most unique piercings I've. Do you have any other quirks about you? That's probably the quirks about me. Well, people who know me would say my entire person is a quirk. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> No, look, I'm, the quirkiest thing about me is uh, I know who I am yeah. and people find that quite intimidating. I, I was forced in that position as a 17-year-old and I've spent my entire life uh, working in that you know, solipsis space, if you like, that, that idea of solipsism that you, you're going to learn and understand and appreciate who you are. And that, for me, is uh, the, the basis of my entire yeah. life. I'm not religious I don't wave fish above my head. I'm not part of any sort of weird cult. I don't believe in you know inspiration or motivation, so to speak. I believe in provocation mm. and your opportunity to take that provocation and make it work in your own world and uh, develop your own commitments, your own direction, your own strengths and appreciate what your weaknesses are. So my piercing... Uh, Quite seriously, I, I had my penis pierced because I was in a long-term relationship and I was looking for a greater sexual enhancement. That's the truth behind that particular endeavour. Did it work? Uh, look, yes and no. It, <laughs> it really depends on on the, the, the person that you're, you're having sex with. But, I mean, I can, like in all seriousness, I can have this genuine conversation right here and now and appreciate why this was done. Yeah. Uh, again, the actual act itself was an incredibly, uh, I guess, erotic uh, slash, um, what would you call it? Almost spiritual. Out of body. Out of body experience <laughs> yeah. to go and do this. It was a pretty wild thing to do. But mm. again, you're talking to somebody. Uh, and again, I might as well give my latest book a bit of a plug here. Uh, in my latest book, I, I write about the fact that when I was 12 years old over in Napier Street, Fitzroy, uh, in the 80s, where no one wanted to live in Fitzroy in the 80s, uh, at my auntie and uncle's house, I came across their library. 
the rest of the family was uh, out at a, at a function around the, the kitchen table, if you like, drinking and so forth. It's probably the only time I ever saw my parents drunk um, in my entire life. And, and I snuck away as a 12-year-old and came across their library and, and this incredible wealth of books. And I was pulling books out of the, the bookcase and, and just reading these extraordinary books around everything from sexual practice to gardening to architecture to you know po politics. And as a 12-year-old, I was just struck by all of this. And as I said, as I outlined in my own book, I realized there and then that one person's end point is another person's starting point. Yeah. You know, you want to wear that blue shirt? I would never be caught dead in that blue shirt. <laughs> <laughs> we all I actually have... dressed up for you. No, <laughs> no, but it's just really, really interesting. And I'm getting a serious comment about yeah. you as a person, Jeremy. I don't care what sort of shirt you wear. I care about what sort of person you are, the way in which you treat others, the way in which you treat yourself. I'm interested in your philosophies, your lifestyle, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not judging you against a shirt mm. or a haircut or whatever it may be, but you have to remember that I was pushing boundaries which people think are just non-existent yeah. in 2020. I keep saying that. Uh, with my hairstyles, with the way I dressed, with the things that I said, all the rest of it, not, not for shock value, just who I was. Mm. Expression. You know, people have said to me many times, you're the Dennis Rodman of AFL football. No, I'm not. I've met Dennis Rodman. I've interviewed Dennis Rodman. Dennis is a very different human being to who I am. I don't think Dennis Rodman really has much clue about who he genuinely is. Yeah. You know, I, I've got I'm heavily tattooed. The tattoos aren't there for show. They're a representation of who I am. You know, the piercing was done for a specific set of reasons. Yeah, it was a, a big uh, uh, folly, if you like, on the footy show. And some uh, some would say that that was, you know, gratuitous that I went, I had no idea. Mm. I had no idea they were going to do that. So mm. I've got a choice in that moment. Do I kick up a fuss or do I not take myself so seriously and say, look, it's not a big deal. Yes, I did it. So if you want to have a bit of fun at it, I, I really don't care. It's not the end of the world. And I guess you've like obviously built yourself up a sustainable life post-football with you working in youth justice and you've done a lot of your north. You've written some pretty cool books. So you've really got, you know, got a strong, you've got three children, is that correct? Yeah, so you've got a really nice post-life footy I guess that comes back to the experience you've had during football and prior to football, you said, some of the difficult times you had in your upbringing. Do you feel a bit of a concern with some of the current football players that there isn't said sort of that much that they can do after football? They're sort of stuck in a mud. Like, what do they really do once they finish? Like, there are opportunities they're in. I, I disagree with you 100%. Once you finish football, once you finish anything, you can do whatever you want to do. You've just got to have the discipline, mm -hmm. the inclination to pursue whatever it is that you have to do. You know, you, it's embarrassing because we're all trying to keep our Uber ratings up. When you, <laughs> when you meet your latest Uber driver who's come out from Punjab and you're talking to him and, and he says, I've left my family, blah, 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 I'm 20 years old. When we shouldn't be whinging about football players who are finishing their, their football career unable to think about what's next. Yeah. You should have been smart enough from the get-go to realise that your career is finite, that you mm. have to be thinking about what's next, that sitting on the couch and, and drinking a beer and, and applauding your own efforts isn't the way forward that you either are going to invest your money creatively, your time creatively, uh, find a way forward that's appropriate for you. And that could be taking a, what's perceived to be a huge step back. 
Hmm. Maybe you have to step back to going to uni. Maybe you have to step back to some other form of learning, mentorship, internship, whatever it happens to be. Uh, in, in all seriousness, every time I step into an Uber or for that matter, a taxi or anywhere, because I love talking to people and people share their stories from wherever they are around the world and, and what they've been through, you realize that, wow, we're very, very privileged human beings. And again, if you've played sport, that is a huge privilege and that should never be an excuse for you coming up short. Mm. Whilst you're playing your sport, very, very tough, very, very tough for the modern player to hold a job, mm. et cetera, et cetera. But that doesn't mean even if it's an hour a day, writing, reading, whatever it may be, building your way up to your exit point, which for most players is still around three and a half, four years. Yep. So yep. that's what the statistics say. Well, we spoke to Ned and Riley, a couple of the younger players in the Adelaide Crows list, and they say they have very strong counselling as soon as they walk through the doors into the club, preparing them for the next step. Have to. And, and again, you can be oblivious to that. Mm. You can think that you're beyond any of that sort of stuff. And again, people say all the time, you know, how come this guy hasn't reached his potential? This hasn't happened. And, and again, we should push that back into uh, all sports, women's sports, all sorts of... There's injuries, there's timing, there's psychological struggles mm. for any number of reasons. And some people are very, very good at being sports people. Others are good at being athletes. Some are good in front of a crowd. Others are good. You've got to be careful what you wish for. Yeah. And there's a lot of people out there who would, you know, would imagine that they could do a lot better if we go full circle back to Jeremy, your love of the Carlton Football Club, or for that matter, Richmond. Richmond's struggling a bit now. Mm. Oh, I could do X, Y, and Z. I could beat these guys. I guarantee you. We head down the park with, I've got a torn meniscus in my right knee. I have to have an operation on June the 20th. Mm. I'm happy for any of your listeners to meet me down the local park. You can kick up 10 footballs and go head-to-head in a marking contest with me. They won't mark one of them. They won't. Just because you've got years of professional experience mm. and body control and knowledge that they just don't have. The same way as I can't walk into KPMG here today and just decide this is the way we're doing things. Because I don't know the structures, the processes. I don't know the budgets. I don't know how it rolls out. So you can either be incredibly arrogant and think, yeah, I know how to click my fingers and make all these things happen and I can do better than these people. Or... You can be more considered and more thoughtful and say, well, yeah, okay. <laughs> they're, they're there for a particular reason. And it could be just coping. I, I could not cope in this environment day to day. It's not for me. I know that. I can consult into this space, as I've done for many companies many, many times. I can consult into it. Mm. But I can't come into this environment and pretend to be something that I'm not because it's not me. Mm-hmm. So there's a great strength in knowing your your liabilities, your weaknesses, and how you can manipulate those in order to continue being successful. So a, a footballer, let alone any athlete who thinks that their careers last forever, yeah. mistake number one. I mean, talking about not thinking in this environment, you you said that you don't. I mean, I offered you a coffee before. You said, "Oh, you know, you don't drink coffee." I've never had a coffee in my life. Um, so yeah, tell us a bit about that. And has that been a challenge? <laughs> Given the number of times you have to say no to a coffee, and yeah, it's it's it, that is well, you get it five points back. <laughs> that is actually a good question because somebody explained to me many years ago. They said, "Hey, do you realise that you probably make it really awkward for people? Yeah. They're offering you a coffee and you don't drink it. 
So instead of saying it in... I was thinking like a hard coffee smell, but <laughs> coffee, I thought the coffee's not good enough. So instead of saying it in a way which, you know, inadvertently in, in, in a previous life, I might have said it in a way that came off as being maybe aggressive or dismissive or, or uh, un, um, unthoughtful. Mm. I, once I had that conversation with that particular person, I thought, oh, I've got to sort of turn this around so people understand it's just not something that I want mm. Mm. and I, I don't partake in it. But if you want to have four coffees, that's absolutely fine. You do what you need to do. Mm. I'll do what I need to do. So I've had people say, well, I'm not having a coffee now or order two or have a smoothie or have a juice or whatever it may be. Yeah. So the test at least. Yeah, yeah. look, it's funny. Just yesterday I was sat down for an interview and a girl said to me that, uh, she was told that the vision for world peace or a particular person's vision for world peace is understanding people around you. And I'm very big on that. Mm. I want to understand people around me and I'd like people to understand who I am too. So if that's the baseline that I'm taking into every day to actually stop, share, listen, observe and, and appreciate who's around me and myself, well, then I think I'm living a fairly productive life. Very good. Yeah, yeah we... Really appreciate you to come and have a chat to us. It's been, been a pleasure. It's been yeah. a very good conversation. And again, yeah. there is a scoreboard here and, and the score is Glenn wins and Jeremy <laughs> comes last. Yes. <laughs> Not the first time I've come, come last. last You're right in the middle section. <laughs> well, um, yeah. All right, yeah. Thanks for having Big me. Big thank you. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Yeah, great. Yeah, continue to do amazing things like you've done you. in your life and you're really making an impact in the world. Could which honestly is fantastic. keep talking for another three hours. But yeah, yeah. Very, very yeah. insightful and well-spoken. Yeah, really so fantastic. Thank you, John. Right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.